The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Shlomo Yaffe will now present his lecture, Drug Abuse, A Jewish Perspective. If we're to talk about the intersection of Jewish law, American law, and obviously medicine, as, we'll, as, we'll ex- as we will explore, the and uh, again, I'll be, again, uh, something I always say when I speak on medical and and legal aspects. I've spent a lot of time with doctors and with lawyers and with stuff they've written. That being said, I am neither, and you're more than welcome to interject uh, if I make an error. We'll have some time for questions later, but there's always the possibility of error and not deferring opinions. That's for later, but if I make an error, please do uh, jump in. So the problem of substances that alter people's state of mind is multifaceted. Because the first question is, before we even look at the law, what ought to be a controlled substance? You know, arguably, uh, chocolate has a has a enthusiasing effect on people, and quite frankly, uh, especially the younger you are, uh, sugar will uh, will absolutely change the state of mind of a child, especially if it's a hungry child uh, under the age of 15. Sugar has been proven to have very significant effects uh, on their state of mind. And the other big issue is, with, and this is a fundamental problem with creating law, as we'll see later, with creating law with regards to mind-altering substances, which is you can have a lot of people who have had very potent opiates for pain relief, and once they finish their course of pain medication, they have absolutely no craving, no addiction, no inclination to ever take one of those uh, one of those pills again. Uh, I remember as a 20 odd year old, uh, I had my wisdom teeth pulled, and I was given something with back then a relatively large amount of codeine, and uh, and I I took one pill. And I got dizzy, and I never took another codeine pill in my life. And I'm sure that's the experience of a lot of people. And as we'll touch upon later, the genetic component of the way, both of the way people react to, we'll use the term narcotics in a very broad sense, including things like alcohol, marijuana, even nicotine. The way people react to narcotics is very different. And the results of narcotic use, not just in the question of addiction, but on a whole range of psychological ailments, is very, very driven by the particular genome 
of each individual, as is true for a lot of things, and, but we're not here to talk about all those things. So the first problem that you have when you're creating a law for a state, let alone for a nation as vast and as diverse as this country, is the definition of what a narcotic is, what the problems are, and so on. So a bit of overview, which is that basically until 1906 or so, there was very little <clears throat> regulation of narcotics and all kinds of preparations containing uh, morphine, which is essentially uh, very similar to heroin, in other words, opium, uh, cocaine, uh, to some extent, cannabis, and a lot of other uh, highly addictive narcotics were commonly put in all kinds of patent medicines, uh, meaning to say they, these medicines were patented and typically sold uh, over the counter, which was most medicines in those days. So you have, it, you have in, in 1906 or so, you have a codification uh, relate, it's part of a larger pure food, for food, pure food, and food and drug act. But you begin to have this codification and the states do their things too. You had a multiplicity of federal laws, a multiplicity of state laws. And finally, uh, in I believe it was 1972, you had the Controlled Substances Act. And the Controlled Substances Act attempted to, at least from the perspective of federal law, create a overarching system. And in addition, uh, the penalties for selling and using these crimes were also fixed over time. These substances, you had the whole mandatory sentencing guidelines that have been given over the years, a Supreme Court case that struck down some of them, though many judges tend to follow them and the whole problem of what became known as the prison industrial complex, which basically uh, is, uh, involves mostly public but also private entities, who everyone's job and position and advancement in the public legal field, if you're a district or assistant district attorney, is dependent on getting convictions. And uh, drug convictions are easy to get and they tend to be disproportionate in the poor minorities and so on, which creates a host of social ills because people who have been in prison for, for any amount of time and the, the results, the long-term results are exacerbated over time. Uh, the more time you spend in prison, the less likely you are to do anything but end up back in prison again. And there are numerous studies, that's not our general purpose, but. The point is, is that the Controlled Substances Act is on the whole an attempt to wield a very, a very blunt hammer on a, on a very nuanced and problem. So the essence of the CSA is that you have, you have five, you have five schedules. Each of the, each of, some have no legal use, some have a legal use, but are highly addictive, et cetera. And you, you know, you have this all, all in your handout. Uh, one of the one of the key issues that we come to is the question of are all of these are all of these drugs we'll use the colloquial term are all of these drugs harmful and in what way are they harmful and part of the issue has to do uh, 
both with alcohol and many other drugs, uh, again, people taking painkillers and the like, a lot of it has to do uh, with the reaction of the particular individual. And individuals can react in, in, in ways, anyone who's dealt with on a counseling level, and I've in preparation to talk extensively to psychiatrists and psychologists involved in counseling, will tell you that one of the problems is that, that there is a certain core of addicts for whom the addiction experience is so, is so positive in their mind that they simply have no motivation whatsoever to leave it, even though it is creating a negative effect on their lives in numerous levels, which is why treatment, why, why addicts tend to be so resistant to treatment. And this, of course, brings us to the point that there is no question that the aspects of the CSA that relate to, that relate to narcotics, that, have a, that, that where the addiction happens, that addiction tends to be pervasive and destructive, I don't think anyone in this room, uh, unless, then, uh, you know, uh, I, we're, we're apolitical in Chabad, unless you have, you know, some extreme libertarians who believe the government's only business is, is defense and perhaps not even that, but beyond that, most most people I've spoken to in the legal and medical field do feel that there's a range of narcotics that are so, the results are so difficult and the addiction is so pervasive that laws against them remain sensible. The only question is if we should be taking a medical or legal model. But assuming that uh, the law is effective and with the increasing rate of deaths from opiate overdose in the last five years, I don't see that the laws are effective. Could be there are more effective laws available. But there's a story that really illustrates this problem and why well-meaning people, and perhaps correctly well-meaning people, have created uh, laws like the, C like, like the CSA and similar laws in basically every civilized country in the world. And when I say civilized, I mean countries that are not failed states that have no laws. But every country that has laws has laws about these matters. And because once someone is addicted, even the best treatment, it's a very unlike, it, there's a, there isn't a good percentage of getting the person out of addiction, which takes over a person's life, again, as everyone in this room knows. So the story is told uh, about a gentleman in the old country, as they say, whose father was unfortunately a miserable drunk. One day, he's, his father is sober. He tried to control his intake. One day, his father's sober, and they're walking along the street, and they come upon a drunk, and the drunk is rolling in the mud of the gutter, and in the shtetls in Europe, he had lots of mud, and kids are throwing things at him and making fun of him. So he goes to the house, and he takes his father to the street, and he says, look at this man. This is how you look when you're drunk. And the father, his jaw drops, and he looks extremely concerned. And he runs over to the man lying in the gutter, and he starts shaking him and trying to get him to wake up. He's whispering something in his ear. So the son runs over, thinking he's about to have a healing moment. And he hears the father shaking the drunk and saying, Tell me, my good man, where did you get such good liquor? And, but this is, the, this is the tragedy of addiction. So 
the way that we've dealt with it in this country until now is by laws and penalties. Part of the problem is that, again, the nature of our adversarial system and the nature of the way we measure success in a court. You know, ideally, the most successful court would be one that has no prosecutions because everyone is following the law. But it doesn't work that way. And therefore, it's the nature of human beings to go after the low-hanging fruit. And therefore, it is the lowest level dealers and users who end up going to jail on the whole. And the more money you have, again, one of the shortcomings of an adversarial system such as our own is that the more money you have, the more likely you are, in essence, to be able to buy your way out of a conviction or plead out to something less significant, as everyone in this room is familiar with. So that is the general overview. Uh, and uh, again, for CLE purposes, you have all the, you have the full, uh, the full overview, the full, the full condensation of the CSA. I now want to move to the, to the question of how Ju Judaism and Jewish law look at the question of narcotics and, in general, mind-altering substances. I also want to make, a, make a, an important introductory point, which is my goal here is not a thought experiment as to how uh, we would deal with controlled substances if we lived in a society that was governed by Jewish law, which there is no such larger society. Individual communities govern themselves by Jewish law, but they're subject to the law of the land, which is the United States or Canada or, for that matter, Israel, which has components of Judaic law in its legal system. But the Israeli legal system is not the Judaic law legal system. And that's uh, – I often meet people uh, who uh, – I once gave a talk for the Utah Bar Association, which is 95 percent Mormon. And most of them were under the impression – that Talmudic law was the law of the state of Israel. So I had to disabuse them of that notion. Not that it's necessarily a bad idea, but the point being that we presently have no legal system that follows Jewish law. However, as we just read in last week's Torah portion, we say that this is that the Torah is your wisdom and understanding to the eyes of the nations, which on a very simple level means that the Torah has a lot of wonderful ideas, especially in its development in Talmudic and subsequent law, and it has something to share. That is why every state allows comparative analysis of uh, Jewish law or uh, European law, you know, EU law with U.S. law, because every legal system has something to teach the other. So my goal here is not to, to create my own Jewish CSA out of the bits and pieces that we have, but to suggest the value system that might inform how we as Jews who, thank God, have influence. In other words, many of us are in the legal professions. We have a vote and so on. What do our values say that are of use to society as a whole? So let us begin with the Jewish attitude towards uh, mind-altering substances in the first place. So we have some very basic biblical sources. Page 9 in your handout. The Noah the husband's husbandman began and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered within his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brethren, and Shem and Yafis, they covered their father over. But whatever Ham did or said created a lot of negativity. But the main person we're critical of over here is Noah. It's very clear, both from the text itself and all the commentaries, that Noah is very strongly criticized. A, the first thing you plant is, is grapes. The first thing you want is wine. Plant something useful when the world has just been recreated. And the, and the becoming drunk is seen as a, as a tremendous negativity. And in general, uh, in general, the law is that, uh, as we'll see, uh, Jewish law imposes significant disabilities even on someone who is slightly intoxicated. On the other hand, there is an aside, which is um, in the book of in the book of Judges. There's this whole discussion, this parable, uh, this parable uh, told uh, about a about essentially a dictator who took power and slayed his brothers. Avimelech, he he killed many of his brothers, and uh, the surviving brother gets up and. Uh, and stands on a mountaintop and tells a story about trees. And the point was that the only tree that wanted to rule over the trees, every tree was too busy doing useful stuff. And the only tree that wanted to rule over the other trees was the thorn bush who says, let me embrace you with my thorns and then it will burn you all up because we all know thorn bushes burn very easily. The idea being, and this is a Jewish theme, anyone who wants leadership is completely unworthy of it. Moses, David, all got, they chased them for leadership. If you want to be a leader, you're probably no good at it. That's the general premise. Leaders, even if they're capable, run away from it. But in the process of going through all the trees, each of the trees describing how useful they are, they don't have time to waste on politics. And the tree said to the vine, come you and rule over us. And the vine said to them, should I leave my wine, which cheers up God and man? And go hold sway over the trees. In other words, I do something useful. I make God happy. We pour wine on the altar in the, in the tabernacle in the temple. And it makes people happy. Which is why, you know, to sanctify the Sabbath or Yom Tov. Or to do Havdalah. Biblically, there's a biblical obligation to sanctify the Shabbat and a holiday at its entry and its exit. But you just have to say words. The rabbis added the obligation to say it on wine because wine brings joy and quality and we want there to be a sense of gravity and joy and quality. So therefore, it's quite, and more than that, almost every, whether it's a wedding or a Brit, almost anything Jewish, any Jewish passage of time or life passage involves wine. Because Wine is considered not just to be the prince of beverages. Part of its advantage is its alcohol content. So a little bit of the happiness, as if it were, that wine provides, it's clearly a positive thing. So when it comes to alcohol, as we'll see in a moment, Jewish law is very clear. We have the Nazarite who sees a propensity for abuse and takes an oath not to drink wine for a period of time and maybe even their whole life. In other words, people prone, Jewish tradition tells us people prone to abuse alcohol should avoid it. But a little bit is okay, but, never, but now we get to a very interesting point. 
that even though alcohol can be used in moderation, Jewish law, tradition, Bible, Mishnah, Talmud are very clear that drinking wine was a very regular thing. On the other hand, Jewish law prohibits anyone at all under the influence of alcohol from doing any ritual religious act. Even the Kiddush is recited when? Before you drink the wine, not after. Havdalah is recited when? Before you drink the wine, not after. Because the slightest, here's a key point, which I'm going to interject in the middle, then move on to some other things. The slightest altering of the normal state of consciousness by any other method than using the normal consciousness, such as meditative prayer and so on, but any external chemical altering of consciousness is frowned upon and rejected by Jewish law as a means of spiritual achievement. In other words, Judaism does not recognize the use of anything other than what a person has within themselves in their most sober state. So, you know, there was a famous, uh, famous peyote case where the Supreme Court said, look, you can't break the drug laws, even though this is a very important part of your religion. So Judaism would say that any external chemical, food, etc., altered state of consciousness is in itself, is in itself undesirable. And we're going to address this for a moment. Let me also make the point that, for example, something which disturbs uh, nature lovers, but nevertheless is an interesting fact, a person, the Amidah, the silent devotion, the most important part of prayer, unless you have no choice, you may not pray outdoors, no matter how beautiful the scenery. You must find a rock, find a tree, you must pray in an enclosed space. To the extent that Maimonides writes that if you have a mosque that's empty, because mosques don't have religious symbolism, it's better to pray in a mosque, not when they're praying, not when they're having their minion, but if you have an empty mosque somewhere, it's better to pray in a mosque indoors than outdoors, not in a mosque. That's how strong is the law. Why? One of the reasons is a person feels, you know, stand on a mountaintop, you know, a person feels exhilarated. You feel you own the world. And that's not the state we need to be in in prayer. I'm saying even an external psychological state created by vistas of God's beautiful nature is also something we don't want in prayer, let alone alcohol or any other drug. And here we turn to page 10. Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, Ahava, the laws of prayer. A person who is drunk should not pray because he cannot have proper intention. If he does pray, his prayer is an abomination. Therefore, he must pray again when he's clear of his drunkenness. That's if you're really drunk. One who is slightly inebriated should not pray, but if he prays, his prayer is prayer. When is a person considered as drunk? When he's unable to speak before a king. In other words, if you have a court case that you're, that your career depends on, if you're drunk enough that you can't do your best, that's called being inebriated. If you have to stand before a king who has the power over life or death, and you can't make your best case, you're inebriated. But if he prays, his prayer is a prayer. So when is he considered drunk? When he's unable to speak before a king. And conscious, the person who's slightly inebriated is able to speak before a king without becoming confused, Nevertheless, since you drank a revered of wine, 
which is approximately four ounces of 12% wine. He should not pray until his wine is pastured. Why do I say 12%? Because they didn't have sulfites in the Talmudic times, and therefore wine would ferment until the alcohol killed the fermenting bacteria. And that, that percentage ranges between 12 and 15. There may have been some ancient strains of bacteria that could get you as far as 17, but mostly it's 12. At any rate, and they didn't do distilling back then. What's really clear is that prayer, even though it, to you my soul lifts up, prayer should be in a static consciousness altered state, but it has to come from within. Which is why there is a place for alcohol, but I would argue from a Judaic perspective, there is no place for any other drug that alters the mind unless there's a genuine medicinal purpose. And my purpose today, I'm not discussing medicinal marijuana for the simple reason that the, that the, the paper that some of you were given that summarized at the, um, at the end of this piece on page 29 is dealing primarily with recreational marijuana. There may be benefits to medicinal marijuana. There may be drugs that could be extracted from marijuana that might be beneficial without the, uh, without the, uh, the negative uh, intoxicating aspects. The, 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 we'll get to that study in a moment. But here, I want to address what I believe the Jewish attitude to these things are. And that is, quite simply, why is it that even slight amount of wine or beer or whatever, let alone distilled alcohol, one should not pray? And by the way, this creates all kinds of problems on Purim with davening Meiriv and so on. Purim is, a, is, you know, is, a, is the exception that proves the rule. But be that as it may, it's really quite simple. The purpose, we are supposed to go out of ourselves in prayer. We should, in essence, leave the world behind and be completely caught up with godliness in prayer. But that experience has to come from the same self that you use every day. You obviously can't stay drunk all the time. It would be a very bad idea. You, the real you is the sober self that has to operate, you know, like it always says on the, on the bottle of beer, that has to operate machinery, occasionally be pregnant, uh, you know, occasionally uh, drive a car and so on and so forth, plead a case, do neurosurgery, whatever it is, whatever your thing is. The self that lives in the world is the sober, unaltered self. That same self needs to be able to leave the ordinary and find the divine and the transcendent. Because then when you come back down from prayer and walk out into the marketplace, the, the self that prayed and glimpsed the sublime is the same self who has to be honest at work and be nice to their employees and so on, return a lost object and so on, and resist various temptations. If the self that has this wonderful spiritual experience is not the same self because the mind has been altered and the neural pathways are different, the prayer self can't talk to the regular self, and that defeats the whole purpose of prayer. This is the essence why we quite simply see that though in ancient and Talmudic times, and I am reminded we were looking at, at some 
Mishnayot and Braytot, Tanaitic material from the first and second century, Jews lived from as far away, they lived in northern India, certainly, in the times of the Mishnah, second temple and certainly 200 years later. They lived in northern India, they lived in western China, they lived all along the Silk Road, they lived in Spain, they lived in North Africa, they lived in southern Arabia, they lived in Asia Minor, Afghanistan, and so on. All places where, at least for the last 3,000 years, almost before the Second Temple period, before this exile, before the period of the Talmud, what did all these places have in common? No, many true, but many mind-altered hashish and poppies. These things grew throughout the, in many places of the world where Jews lived. Yet, there's not a single reference to any ritual or other use of, with, uh, of any mind-altering substance other than alcohol. And alcohol, again, is kept out. If you're a little bit drunk, inebriated, you can't sit on a Din Torah, you can't testify before a court, you can't sit on a Jewish law case. And you certainly can't pray, and, or, and so on. And we question whether someone inebriated who gets married, whether the marriage is valid, depending on how inebriated they are at the time. So what's, what's tremendously clear is that and any reference, you know, there's people sometimes quote references to incense. Incense is burned on the altar to God as an offering. Even if it had any narcotics, the secondhand smoke when you're, you know, when you're 100 yards away, because only the Kohen bringing the incense walks into the building, which was a building with a 80, 100 foot ceiling. So there, there are simply no genuine references to anything other than alcohol in all of the classic Jewish corpus, except when you get later to people addicted with opium. So there's questions, uh, you know, about uh, about someone on uh, someone who was on opium and he sold something is the sale a sale but these are these are as they say modern problems relatively speaking when you have a three and a half thousand years history history even eight hundred years ago is modern right but the the core point over here is that we simply have no religious use for these substances which and the reason I dwell on this is is because there is one area where traditionally where traditionally there is some use of alcohol, and that is among certain uh, certain Sardic circles and certain Hasidic circles. You, you have their various names for it in different cultures, but you get together and you and and you say lechayim in Yiddish we call it a fabrengen, and there is some alcohol involved. But that is for the purpose. The purpose of a fabrengan is not prayer. The purpose of a fabrengan is to open yourself up and be willing to listen to how you need to improve and help others to improve and to find ways together to improve the community. We know alcohol releases inhibitions, so a little bit of alcohol to grease the wheel, not, it shouldn't be abused, to release some inhibitions so we, people can talk and actually open up. It was as if it were permitted for this sake. But this is not an act of religious worship. It's an act of, of being able to seek help and so on and so forth. And 
And again, Purim is related to this. Uh, the, you know, I'm sure you can. There'll be plenty of divrei Torah about the drinking on Purim and Chabad.org. By the way, just so you should know, the Code of Jewish Law says explicitly that if there's any chance that you'll misbehave in any way by drinking on Purim, don't drink. Just for the record. Um, but with but with that being said, there the there is no record of using anything else. And here I consulted with, with not just professionals, but with people who imbibed a great deal of cannabis during the 60s and 70s and so on. I have some, as a former, to use a, non, a non-technical term, former hippies who I'm relatively close to, and they all told me that it is not possible to have a Fabrengen on marijuana or hashish or anything like that. Because what it does is it disconnects you, you drift away, you know, uh, you know there's, uh, the, and everything is fine. If the purpose is to look at yourself and say, ugh, I'm not the way I should be, a, a person who drinks will do that. As they told me, everything's good, everything's fine. So there's no use, e- even in the context of a Fabrengen, for any of this stuff. So, and altered states of consciousness, again, you have to earn them. We should reach a point in prayer where we're completely focused on something else or in meditation on deep spiritual ideas. But you have to get there under your own steam. You have to get there solely by using the mind and soul that God gave you in its ordinary state. Because then it's useful, because then you can, as we said, you can use it in other cases. Now we put, so what does that leave us with? And this is the essence of the intersection of law, medicine, and Jewish law, and ethics. What we're left with is health. In other words, Jewish law prohibits anything that might harm our health. And we look at the latest medical, we look at the general opinion of the medical establishment at the time, the majority opinion with the latest information that we have. That is the general premise of Jewish law. So, for example, if we talk about vaccination, there are a few physicians out there who reject vaccination. The vast majority of medical professionals see this as an incredibly good thing. Therefore, Jewish law rose unequivocally without a question that you, that vac- you must vaccinate, and not vaccinating your children is a very serious crime of you shall not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, let alone your own children. So, when we talk about narcotics, exactly the same things apply. So we all know the balance with opiates and the attempts to deal with pain management in a more intelligent way because this country in particular has a terrible uh, opiate addiction problem that's only getting worse. Uh, prescription drug abuse uh, with painkillers and so on. So there's that balance. Some people need morphine, etc. And obviously, Jewish law embraces the most effective means of pain management because pain is a very big deal in Jewish law. To the point that 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 the Reb Moshe Feinstein was one of the greatest halachic decisors of the 20th century. Says that you can even give someone relatively high doses of morphine if they're in pain from a terminal illness, even though in the aggregate that will depress their breathing and 
from a purely empirical point of view, accelerate their demise. As long as the opium isn't, it's the opium and the disease that together that's killing the person, relieving pain makes it permissible. You can't do euthanasia, but relieving pain has a lot of flexibility in Jewish law. But beyond relieving pain, we're obliged to keep people as healthy as possible and obviously not put them in positions of addiction where they're going to ruin their lives. So now that brings me to what is really the burning issue on the, on the fire uh, with regards to marijuana. And this is because, A, several states have embarked on a, uh, including my own Massachusetts, on a uncontrolled experiment of making recreational marijuana available to adults, which of course means that ultimately will be available for everyone. Kids who want to smoke can still smoke and so on. That's first of all. And secondly, uh, many other states have permitted medicinal marijuana, which is basically, certainly in California, it's if you want a prescription, you can get one kind of thing. So. The question that Jewish law will ask, I'm not saying that I have an absolute unequivocal answer, but the question Jewish law would raise with regards to marijuana legalization. And incidentally, I believe there are more states that allow, uh, that are allowing recreational marijuana than allow you to ride a motorcycle without a helmet, which is a very interesting, uh, very interesting fact. The only state I know of is Connecticut, but there may be others that still permit riding a motorcycle. But the point is very few people ride motorcycles, but a lot of people are going to be smoking marijuana or ingesting it some other way. Which brings me to the question of recreational marijuana safety. So there was a whole uh, paper that some of you have, but if you look at page 29, they, the, the, this, this, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, this author in 2016 put together all the known studies. And I have some more information from 2017. So if we take a look at the table, addiction to marijuana and other substance over a level of confidence that, it, 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 that it's addictive high, abnormal brain development. This is mostly with regards to adolescents whose brains are still developing rapidly and fetuses. Progression to use of other drugs, medium. Overall confidence means the degree to which the study demonstrates a strong correlation or even a causation. Schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, all medium. Diminished lifetime achievement is high. You know, it's people who use marijuana before the age of 26. There are numerous studies that demonstrate given controls. And one of the real, in 2017, the DEA had a public panel for about an hour and a half in which various experts in the field got up and summarized their, their lifetime of research. And identical twins who are genetically identical, one, who's, one who used marijuana, one who did not, the, there was a very high rate that the marijuana-using twin had, had significantly lower lifetime achievement and even IQ across their lifetime in a very, very strong demonstration. Motor vehicle accidents high. What's the big problem with, with motor vehicle use of marijuana? Who knows? 
Right. Not only the, and the reason they don't know how to measure is twofold. Number one is it's very hard to measure because there's a lot of metabolites. So we don't know how it tends to break down. But secondly, different even more than alcohol. We all know like some people drink one little one little glass and they're drunk, and some people can drink a whole bottle and they're not. It's to do with the enzyme that breaks down the alcohol. But the fact is, with marijuana, apparently genetic variation is even stronger. In other words, the effect of marijuana, and this is something in the DEA's 2017 panel, they, they make the point that all the things we look at, in other words, if you look at like psychosis, schizophrenia, depression, and suicidal ideation, they use the term suicidal ideation because there are many mental illnesses and some undefined ones that lead people to have suicidal thoughts. So all of those things show up higher in certain people who use marijuana. Apparently, the genetic profile is extremely important in this regard. Motor vehicle accidents high, symptoms of chronic bronchitis high, lung cancer low, because you don't need to smoke as much marijuana as you do, and cigarettes, tobacco is actually uh, worse for you. Um, King James I of, the, of, of the, the United Kingdom pointed out that tobacco was noxious and likely to kill you, but no one listened. Um, this was, uh, took a few hundred years to figure that out. But be that as it may, there, especially for people under the age of 26, 29, depending which study you look at, there is a very high rate of a range of permanent problems that affect a person's life on numerous levels. I should also point out that some of some of the issues like lower lifetime income, lower IQ, and lower uh, lower life lower lifetime achievement, e.g., income, all bring in their weight a lot of other things: higher heart disease, cancer, obesity, and all the ills that come with it. Uh, uh, people in these in, in in the lower income strata tend to be more likely to be victims of murder. Or, or commit murder and so on, the reality is that this is a cascading problem. So I want to argue that notwithstanding uh, the premise that, uh, that uh, the claim that adults in their 30s and 40s or whatever can use marijuana without much effect, A, we don't know, we're engaging in this huge uncontrolled experiment now, but B, for people who in every state that legalize marijuana are allowed to use marijuana, their brains are still developing, and there's a range of issues. And again, one of the biggest issues is that the anecdotal evidence, and my, again, my, my formerly or presently marijuana-consuming uh, acquaintances and friends, uh, there's no question that when people are smoking regularly, they care far less about the things that we usually define as normal human ambitions. And the fact that there may be medicinal purposes, uh, that's a separate issue. Again, we're not talking about medical marijuana. We're talking about recreational marijuana. And therefore, I would say from given Table 2, and given, uh, you can find it online, given the information that the DEA collected, and given the other references in the New England Journal of Medicine, because this person references a lot of articles, it would seem to me that there are enormous dangers to one's well-being and livelihood and social involvement, not to mention, not to mention 
that a, that the most dangerous thing from a Jewish perspective is not caring. People who don't care and are not passionate about doing the right thing won't do the right thing. A state of depression, which doesn't mean clinical depression, but a state of, ah, whatever, I don't care, is considered the worst moral failing in Judaism because it makes everything else impossible. The Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, said that this state of, of, of depression, the state of not caring, is not a sin, but it's worse than any sin because it leads to all of them. So that being said, it would seem to me that based on what we know right now, and Jewish law and ethics always go with the, with the broader scent, uh, the broader, the broad consensus of the medical field, it would seem that quite clearly that there should, that there should not, from the perspective of Jewish laws to save the world, recreational marijuana should not be permitted. Now, the separate question of crime and punishment and prison and so on is an entirely different one. Jewish law, as we know, favors rehabilitation over prison. Uh, most drug offenders don't need prison. There should be more effective ways of dealing with them. But that's not our general purpose here. So that is the basic overview and introduction. Now, in addition, um, in addition... Uh, the, uh, the, I want to, um, I want to take a look at, first of all, a letter from Moshe Feinstein, who is, again, late, he lived until 1986, one of the great halachic decisors, on page 11. And this was a question not with regards to civil law, because Jewish law generally says you have to keep civil law. To paraphrase Ramosha Feinstein's tshuva, if you live in Colorado or Massachusetts, can you smoke marijuana? And now, Ramosha is writing, by the way, only based on anecdotal evidence from people he interviewed. He didn't have all the research from this 2016 article that's summarized uh, on the back page. It is obviously forbidden to smoke marijuana. I'm going to read it and parse it a little bit as this violates many basic laws of our Torah. First of all, it physically injures the person. And by the way, in his caveats, Reb Moshe really did his research. And this, is, this was written in the, in the early 70s. Even if there are people who are not physically affected by this, again, there's this huge genetic component, it mentally affects the person as it destroys his mind and prevents understanding, understanding things properly. Again, those under the mid-20s, there is a very high correlation with lower IQ. And in the 2017 research presented at the DEA uh, panel, they gave it a number. The number is that if you look at identical twins, who both, who one smokes and one does not, one uses, one doesn't, there is a difference, the average difference, the mean, is eight points of IQ. Does anyone here know how much eight points of IQ is? Someone with 100 is average in the 50th percentile. Someone with 92 is in the 30th percentile. Um, eight points can be the difference, for example, with a whole host of other things, between admitted into an Ivy League school or a third-tier school. Eight points is huge because of the fact that people are very clustered around 100. So it's 
So again, this is a this is an assumption based on anecdotal evidence from Moshe made, but the research seems to support it. And prevents them from understanding. This is a terrible thing, since not only can the individual not properly study Torah, because remember, you don't really care when a person is. In, intoxicated, in particular with the class of drugs that marijuana belongs to, again, what I'm told is that what I'm told is is that everything's fine. I don't really care, you know, if I eat this or I eat that or or if I have a paper to do or not. In Torah, in Judaism, as you know from Jewish law and the Talmud, nuance and detail are everything. We seek to find the divine, not the devil, but the divine, in the details. The subtle distinction is what is unique about Torah and Judaism. The difference between whether this penny belongs to you or to another person. This is the whole universe. This is the whole world. So a person who is in a state of intoxication that prevents them from caring passionately about the difference between one detail and another, that is the utter destruction of the whole concept of Torah story, Torah study as it exists in Judaism. Since, and more than you cannot improperly perform its vote, since doing them mindlessly is considered they were not done at all. And especially for prayer. Some mitzvot, you do them mindlessly, you get it under the wire. But, but prayer, without intention and focus, doesn't exist at all. Furthermore, he's creating within himself a very strong addiction, which is much stronger than desire to eat, etc., which are necessary for a person to live. There are many that cannot control and withstand this desire. We see the wayward son is killed for giving in to his desires and stealing and so on, because we know he's going to murder sooner or later. Though, according to most opinions, it only happened once or never. But how much more so is it forbidden for a person to bring upon himself an even greater desire, especially for something the person doesn't need at all? So, Moshe lays it down pretty strongly, and we'll conclude with a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe from 1965, at the height of Timothy Leary's experiments. I am in receipt of your letter, October 18th, which you write the name of your friends and on your own behalf, and ask my opinions regarding the new drug called LSD, which is said to have properties of mental stimulation, etc. So the Rebbe begins, so the Rebbe... Lubavitcher Rebbe, those of you present probably know that he had an incredibly vast knowledge of numerous sciences. Nevertheless, the Rebbe always said that he was an electrical engineer. Biochemistry is not my field and cannot express an opinion on the drug you mention, especially it is still new. However, I can say that the claim that said drug can stimulate mystical insight is not the proper way to attain mystical inspiration, even if it had such a property. This is what we were saying before. The Jewish way is to go from strength to strength, not by means of drugs and other artificial stimulants, to have a place only if necessary for physical health, according with the mitzvah to take care of one's health. I hope that everyone will agree that before any drugs are taken, one for sure utilizes all one's natural capacities, so the reasons we discussed before, and when this is done truly and fully. I do not think there will be a need to look for uh, artificial stimulants. In other words, and again, the problems are as we discussed before. There is another issue. I read a, a very detailed account of a police officer's uh, cocaine addiction at the height of the cocaine 
epidemic, as if it were, before crack, but the regular cocaine epidemic in the 1980s. So the story is he was an undercover officer. He had to he had to snort some cocaine to prove that he was indeed a genuine drug dealer. And uh, unfortunately, he was one of those people. They say it's psychologically addiction, but he was psychologically prone. So he describes how originally how great he felt and how joyful he felt, and um, and how imbued and and how imbued with he, everything. He, he felt that he was enormously accomplished. So here's the issue. Cocaine makes people feel enthusiastic, according to various articles I read, as if you just won a race or something. LSD, Timothy Leary, in writing about some of his LSD exper ex experiences, so he writes about he was looking at the weave of his trousers, and all of a sudden he saw a tremendous meaning in the weave of his trousers. So after consultation with addiction scientists, it's pretty clear what's happening. When you accomplish something great, like winning a race or getting an A in something or performing a successful surgery, the brain processes this information that comes from your cerebral cortex, and it releases certain neurotransmitters that say, job well done, you accomplished something great. It is a reward, and it's done so that the brain can talk to the body and say, wow, you did something great, because that will in, incite your hands to do the surgery again and so on. This is oversimplification, but it's the basic function. There is a button. There are neurochemical buttons that say meaning. If I spend a lot of time in deep, profound, philosophical contemplation, and I come to some understanding of meaning, I will get that acceleration. The expression in the Talmud is that when someone found a new Tosefta, a new unpublished, as if it were, piece of material from the rabbis of the Mishnah, his face lit up. There is a sense of joy and accomplishment and meaning. There is a neurochemical uh, uh, cascade that happens in your brain when you attain meaning, and that will express itself in your face, in your body, and so on. Again, what's going on in the brain, primarily in the cortex, that will press button, neurochemical buttons and say, meaning, meaning, meaning. What happens with cocaine? You stimulate those neurochemical buttons without accomplish anything. You don't have to get an A. You don't have to perform a successful surgery. You don't even have to find a parking place in lower Manhattan. You merely have to press the chemical button that says accomplishment, accomplishment, without doing anything. You're short-circuiting the process. Same with Timothy Leary, the, the weave of his trousers. From a Kabbalistic perspective, everything in the universe means something. But the significance of the weave of his trousers is because he took a chemical, a complex acid, that said meaning, 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 without it actually having any meaning. You short-circuit the process. You know, it's, you know the, with the electrodes in the rat's brain when they keep pressing the button, same thing. So this is the essence of the problem. And this is why Judaism, even if every state in the human permits it, I believe that Judaism, now, how do you, would be not in favor. Now, how would we deal with the problem? 
That's another discussion, another CLE discussion about alternatives to prison and so on. But the idea that even if you live in a state as I do, that you'll soon be able, you know, to buy any one of 300, you know, brands of marijuana, whatever's, a Jew shouldn't, unless there's a genuine medicinal need, which in itself can probably be accomplished by the purified chemicals rather than the complex cocktail that's present in, in cannabis. The last point is, by the way, that the cannabis today is up to 70 to 80 times stronger in terms of its narcotic effect than the stuff my friends now in their 60s and 70s uh, smoked in the 60s. So with that, we have four minutes left. I take your questions, complaints, arguments, etc. Yes. So alcohol, um, alcohol has can have very damaging effects, but I believe there's a there's a reason why that's the one mind-altering substance that the Torah permits the consumption of all the way back to biblical times, and that is because the the effects of alcohol are very interesting. Study after study demonstrates that moderate consumption of alcohol creates better health states than no consumption. Those who consume it moderately have huge health advantages of those who don't consume it at all. And there's been some questions now, Tufts recently put out a paper as to how, how far this goes and what, con what is mo moderate. But abuse of alcohol has enormous negatives. So it's shaped, as they say, like a hockey stick, an upside-down, it's actually more like a lacrosse stick, but like an upside-down lacrosse stick, okay? But because the majority of people do not abuse alcohol, and for them, it can add years to their life, as well as having this. One of the points people make is that the social benefits of consuming alcohol together might be a lot of the health benefits. At any rate, something that has a, a very large positive effect. Now, there's no evidence of any, of any positive effect of this type in marijuana or anything else. That, in other words, it may, you may not be deleterious if you don't smoke too much of it, but there's no evidence of any positive social, spiritual, uh, or biological health effect to the positive. If there was, we can talk about it again. But with alcohol, there are thousands of years of evidence to this. As a matter of a fact, and again, it may have to do with your genetics, it may have to do with how social you are, but apparently... Within a certain, and this was just, uh, this was a, a, a recent article, you can look for it. I only saw the abstract. But people who don't consume alcohol at all in, a, in certain high-risk groups may have a 50% higher chance of developing Alzheimer's than those who don't. It was a very small sample. I'm sure a larger, a larger, a larger test won't show, a larger survey won't show such drastic evidence. But there is evidence that people who consume alcohol, especially socially and in moderation, have enormous health benefits. And that may be the reason, based on what we know now, why the Torah doesn't prohibit it. Because after all, we, you know, after all, uh, uh, every Jewish ceremony involves bread. We're very big on bread. Too much bread is bad for you if you're inclined, uh, you know, towards type 2 diabetes, right? So we expect you to consume it in moderation. In that sense, uncle sort of like bread. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings. 
and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.